Uh, welcome everybody here and everybody who's in the new theater who's going to follow us through uh, Weblink. Before I introduce today's guests, Martin Wolf and Lord Turner, I'd like to make some announcements. So the plan for this evening is the following. Uh, Martin Wolf will introduce his book, after which our guests will have a discussion about it. After that, you will be given the opportunity to ask uh, our guests uh, some questions. At the end of this evening, at around an hour from now, uh, you will be able to buy Martin's book outside, and he will be sticking around to sign it. Uh, at the end, please make sure that these guys go out first, and then otherwise it could become a bit of a mess. Uh, in case you want to tweet, the hashtag is LSEWolf, which is over there, but please make sure that your mobile is turned on silent. Now, we're recording this event, and if everything goes well, it will be published on the website of conferences, the LSE, and uh, on the website of the Center for Macroeconomics, who's together with the Econ Department sponsoring this event. So now it's my honor to introduce this evening's guest. Martin Wolf is Associate Editor and Chief Economics Commentator at the FT. In his FT columns and other writings, he combines sharp insights, a pragmatic approach, and analysis backed up with facts. His writings attract a wide audience, including politicians, academics, students, financial analysts, civil servants, and probably all of you here has read some of his writings. In fact, it's difficult to think of another economist who has such a large and diverse pool of devoted readers. He has not only written about economics, he has also gained a lot of practical experience. For example, a senior economist at the World Bank and as government advisor. For example, as a member of the Independent Commission on Banking. I'm sure I will not surprise you when I tell you that our speaker has won many awards, and I'm proud to say that he has an honorary doctoral degree of the LSE. Now, he, he may think there's better awards, but I'm very proud of this one. <laughs> now, if anybody's writings could have an impact on what will actually happen in the world, then it's probably those of Martin Wolf. Mervyn King, the former governor of the Bank of England, and starting January an LSE school professor agrees with me. On the back cover of the book, he's quoted, and he says, this is an influential book. Most important of all, it is in my view, not my view, but Mervyn King's view, the right analysis and remedy. Our other guest, Lord Turner, is at least as influential and also has a very impressive track record. Lord Turner has gained experience by working in the financial sector at several prestigious firms, has been a member of the House of Lords since 2005, is a senior fellow of the Institute of New Economic Thinking, and has been chair of important government committees. Especially relevant for this evening's event is that he became chairman of the UK Financial Services Authority in 2008. The Turner Review, published in 2009, provided an excellent start to think about the question how to create a safer, more stable financial sector. This evening's event will probably make clear that this debate is still important and far from over. Now, please join me in welcoming our chief Well, good evening, everybody. It's a great pleasure to uh, be here to lead this discussion of Martin's uh, great new book. Uh, the core subject matter is the financial crisis of 2008 and the extraordinary weak and slow economic recovery uh, since then. I'll personally never forget that crisis. I became chairman of the FSA in September 2008, 
right in the middle of it as it was crashing around us. I spent the autumn of that year dealing with the public policy issues as how we rescued the financial system, and then the subsequent four years debating at a global level what were the reforms needed to make the system more stable. That involved, for instance, all the debates about new capital adequacy requirements, Basel III, etc. But while I was involved in that process of the re-regulation of the financial system, I found myself on an intellectual journey in which I became convinced that our analysis of the causes of the crisis were not nearly sufficiently deep and that the policy proposals we were putting forward were not nearly sufficiently radical. In that intellectual journey, one of the people whom I most valued talking to and discussing these issues with and reading what he was saying about it was Martin Wolf. What was interesting, I think, and I think is true, is that, Martin, you too were on an intellectual journey, and the intellectual journey has ended uh, in this book, uh, The Shifts and the Shocks, because I think it has taken Martin to positions far more radical than he anticipated, uh, would have anticipated five years ago. So, Martin, tell us what went wrong and what we're meant to do about it. I hope you don't mind, but I find it really difficult to give a speech sitting down. Uh, I'm going to talk for 20 minutes uh, covering this entire book. It's not a small book, though I have to say nowadays, by the standards of economics books, it actually isn't that long. If you try Mr. Piketty's book, for example, it's more than twice as long. Uh, But nonetheless, it is quite a lengthy book. I do understand this. Um, And if I'm going to summarize that in 20 minutes, I'm going to have to stand up. So first of all, it's a tremendous pleasure to have this opportunity. Effectively, this is the launch of the book in uh, this country, Um, and the launch of the book, in in fact, because I'll be launching it in the US later. Uh, And I'm delighted to do it here because, first of all, obviously the LSE is the right place, if not here, where. And as has been pointed out, I have the honor of being an honorary doctorate of this place. Um, not never having acquired a doctorate, I've always regarded as getting it by the honorary means as a form of cheating, but a very, but a very enjoyable one. Uh, I'm also immensely grateful to Adair for having been willing to, uh, to discuss the themes of this book. Um, and the main reasons he's already hinted at, his writing in this area... Uh, starting with the Turner Review, has been immensely influential to me. I cite him embarrassingly often in the book. He has given a large number of speeches which are, I think, very significant. And the journey he has taken and the journey I've taken are very, very similar. I'm not going to get into the question of who was ahead, but I got the book out first. Uh, <laughs> there will be a book by, by him out soon, and it's going to be very, very important, and I will argue complementary to my own. Um, the difference largely being that this really is a sort of global history as well as an analysis of what we should do. I want to start by saying why this matters. It might seem obvious why, why obviously it does. Um, but this is, I think, the largest economic uh, disaster in a, my own country, in the developed world of my lifetime. There have been many other immensely important events, but in this country, I think it's the biggest disaster. There's 
um, and above all, the biggest disaster that pretty well nobody in economics and nobody in policy expected, anticipated, or at least initially even understood. So that's a pretty important fact, and it is a fact. The, the second, uh, the only other event of comparable magnitude in terms, or possibly arguable, ma com arguably comparable magnitude in terms of its impact on our thinking was the, I suppose you could refer to it as the great inflation of the 70s, which also led to a great deal of thinking, rethinking about uh, macroeconomic policy, the way economies worked, and of course was a crucial uh, moment, perhaps the crucial event in terms of shifting us from post-war Keynesianism to some form very loosely defined of monetarism, which is more or less where we've been ever since. Uh, um, when we move, moving to inflation targeting, I don't think changes fundamentally. So I think this event is even more important. It's unbelievably costly. I have a, 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 a section in the book which discusses the costs, but it's interesting. It may, it's not something I'd realize, but if you look at it in terms of its long-run costs in terms of foregone GDP, it looks extremely likely that it is going to amount to at least six or seven times annual GDP and possibly much more, depends on future growth rates. In this respect, in economic terms, and I would stress this, in economic terms alone, it is immensely much more costly than either of the two world wars. This is an enormous economic cost. So we have to try and understand how this, how this happened. Um, so what I've done in the book is to try, I've essentially divided the book into two major parts, though so the first part has two sections. The first discusses my understanding of what this crisis was about, why it happened, and how we should think about it. And the second part discusses solutions. Uh, and then, of course, there's a conclusion which tries to bring this all uh, all together. And my remarks today will be divided similarly into those two major sections. First, my analysis of what happened, and, and second, uh, some discussion of possible directions for reform. And some of this, as, I, as Adair has mentioned, is much more radical than I would have imagined uh, I would be advancing a few years Ago. And there are also, as I'll come to in a moment, in this question of what reforms to undertake, some really challenging and difficult questions in thinking about how the economy or economies should be, should be run. So first of all, what happened? I think the starting point for this, beyond the obvious fact that this is an immensely important event, is that it was clearly a failure of institutions, a failure of the financial system, there isn't any doubt about that, a failure of the regulatory authorities, and a failure of monetary policy. Well, that's pretty obvious because uh, uh, we had a set of monetary policies and institutions which were built around, predicated on the assumption that if we stabilized inflation and if 
we largely let the financial markets do what, it, what they were going to do, then the, the, the economy will be at least reasonably stable. And in, indeed, in America, there were economists who actually were describing what we were then in as the great moderation, you know, a period of extraordinary uh, stability. And, of course, the, among the people who believe that, and indeed one of the people whose speeches I cite on, with using, not only using that phrase, the great moderation, but praising, as it were, himself for having delivered it, was uh, Ben Bernanke, who um, delivered this particular speech when he was still a, a governor of the Federal Reserve. But, of course, he subsequently became chairman of the Federal Reserve and arguably among the most important chairman the Federal Reserve has ever had since he was basically responsible policy once the crisis hit. Now, it's pretty obvious that that view of what happened was completely wrong. And I, it's, the, it's complete, it's, it's total, uh, uh, the, the, the scale of the error was not just, as it were, purely institutional, but it was profoundly in economic understanding. It was clearly a profound failure in economic understanding, which, as I admitted at the beginning, I, at least in part, we can discuss what part, fully shared. So what were the failures of economic understanding? I think there were essentially two profound ones, and they're linked. The first was a failure to understand that macroeconomic, long periods of macroeconomic stability are themselves destabilizing. They, are a, they create instability because of the way human beings respond to the experience of stability and the risks they're prepared to run. And the economist who I think got this better than any other was Hyman Minsky. Uh, who was largely ignored, uh, whose work I didn't know really well until the last decade, and who did understand that fundamental link between uh, stability and the destabilizing behavior of the financial sector, I think, better than anybody else. And the second uh, failure was, a, was a, a failure of understanding of the nature of the financial system, and in particularly the view that in, in, in normal circumstances, a competitive economy, a competitive financial system um, was self-stabilizing. Uh, and in, that, in the sense that, and there are various de definitions of this, in the sense that it, embo it embodied a full understanding of the relevant future, and, uh, and that is to say was efficient, and in addition would tend to converge on a, on a, an, on a durable equilibrium at all times. Now, these uh, propositions have turned out to be clearly and fundamentally false. Now, in trying to explain this, the nature of this uh, misunderstanding, I've tried to analyze what seemed to me, in fact, the triggers for this uh, event. And my argument is the scale of the disaster was the result of the interaction of 
two very, very big processes. The interaction is discussed at great length. I don't have the time to go through this now. But the first is a series of enormous macroeconomic changes, changes in the world economy as a whole. And the second is their interaction with the financial sector and the ability of the financial sector, essentially in modern times, particularly and particularly to create leverage, credit, debt, and leverage without limit. And it was the interaction of these two that caused our breakdown. In the macroeconomic events, the crucial ones, to my view, were the emergence, a collapse in real interest rates, which was extraordinary in the late 1990s, which was associated with what a number of economists, and I developed this thesis at length, is called the global savings glut. There was an extraordinary collapse in real interest rates. That triggered a, um, a series of housing booms around the world. That was the trigger event in Minsky's uh, terminology. And that then uh, um, led to an environment in which the expansion of credit against property, rising property prices seemed irresistibly attractive, and that then leads you to the second part of this story, which is what went on in the financial system, completely liberalized, uh, um, able to generate credit essentially without limit. This is the great insight of Vixel in the late 19th century that the credit system is able, when things look good, to create credit without limit, to create money and credit without limit. It was able, through the the, the conventional banking system and the so-called shadow banking system, which was even more liberated from any regulatory control, to expand credit and debt without limit. And this continued until the house price bubble started to burst, particularly in the United States. And when that happened, there was a series of disasters in highly leveraged financial institutions, which began to make people very nervous about the quality of their lending to those intermediaries, and that then led to a panic, which was which basically went on for nearly two years, to 2007-2008, and led to an extraordinarily deep recession and the emergency measures taken by the authorities of the developed world, which essentially consisted of, which essentially consisted of the complete nationalization of the liabilities of the entire global core financial system. An absolutely staggering moment, which was announced explicitly, I stress this, I think it's one of the great moments in world economic history, on October the 10th, 2008, at the IMF's meeting, where the G. Uh, the G7, as it then was, simply said, in the context of this panic, what we're going to do is socialize all the risks and put essentially the liabilities of the entire core financial system on the balance sheet of the, of the states. So this is an, a simply astonishing event and clearly changed the world, in my view. You cannot pretend that you're dealing with a private financial system if that is where you end up. Uh, I, uh, that seems to me uh, pretty obvious. And after it was over, then we had a large financial mess, and we also had a very large macroeconomic problem because this expansion of credit that I've described, and this is crucial, was the way in which the deficient global demand 
and I, it's a crucial part of my theory, the, the deficient, deficient global demand associated with the savings glut and, and the associated global imbalances, the huge surge of capital from the emerging world into the developed world, that was the way the central bankers, in fact, dealt with this macro problem. The credit expansion was the, the way they dealt with their macroeconomic problem of deficient demand. And, of course, once the credit bubble was over, that was over. And we sank immediately into recession. And then a very prolonged period of low demand growth, which has been described by Larry Summers, I think, in a way which I elaborate and, and uh, consider further as a secular stagnation, going back to the thinking of Alvin Hansen in the late 1930s about um, a, a sort of a similar world, the world of the Great Depression. Now, before I end that discussion, let me just add one other part of that. I won't discuss this at great length, but the book also has a very lengthy discussion of the Eurozone crisis. I think it's one of the differences between this book and the others in terms of the analysis is it tries to put the Eurozone crisis into this framework. And I argue that in many respects, the Eurozone crisis is this story in miniature in that there were gigantic imbalances internally which were essentially dealt with by the creation of unsustainable credit booms in a number of countries, of which Spain was far and away the most important. Uh, and, but, of course, it was reinforced by the global credit bubble within which the Eurozone crisis occurred. But it's, to me, part of the story. Now, the difference, of course, is there are certain means of dealing with a crisis that the Eurozone doesn't allow you afterwards to have. You can't adjust your exchange rates easily, and none of the countries concerned have their own central banks. So the sort of policies that the UK was able to follow, massively expansionary monetary policy after the crisis, and the US even more so, massively expansionary monetary policy after the crisis, and in the US also for quite a while quite expansionary fiscal policy, was made effectively impossible in the Eurozone. And for that reason, the crisis there, in my view, has been much more difficult to resolve and has taken much longer uh, to reach any exit. In fact, there isn't an exit today. So let me finally then turn to what you can do about this, because it's clearly the area I think which Adair will want to talk about, and uh, I'll just touch on what seemed to me the key point. Well, the first one is, as I said, the policy regime we had in the macro sphere and the financial sphere, which interact crucially, they interact through the monetary system above all, failed. The, uh, there has emerged after this what I refer to as the quote-unquote new orthodoxy. And I think that's my phrase. Somebody else might have used it. The new orthodoxy, I, in ex elucidating the new orthodoxy, I use the words, because I think he's been the most influential thinker in the world about it, of Ben Bernanke himself, who gave a whole series of lectures on the crisis. And, and I use his words. Essentially, the new orthodoxy consists of the following. One, we must continue with inflation targeting on the original targets. That hasn't changed at all. The central banks continue to do this, though they use more monetary policy instruments before, including, of course, quantitative easing and similar unconventional measures. 
two, we must regulate the financial system much more prescriptively in much more detail. Uh, Adair was talking to the Basel rules. I discuss at some length what all these rules are and how they're supposed to work. I'm not going to go through that now because they are mind-bogglingly <laughs> complex and incomprehensible. And, uh, and uh, you're welcome to read the sections. They're important. And three, crucially, crucially, the, the, the central bank, in fact, although in the U.S. it's a little more complicated, is going to do something called macroprudential policy, which is essentially to have a constant, limitless, as it were, intervention in uh, managing the systemic risk of the entire system. So constantly tinkering with various various, uh, uh, rules, loan-to-deposit ratios and so forth, in order to manage the new um, uh, system. And I argue that I think this is probably an improvement on what we had before, but it's clearly problematic in a number of dimensions. Really problematic. One, the fundamental characteristics of the financial system that we had before remain the same. It is dominated even more, actually, than before by a limited number of gigantic financial institutions. In every country, the financial system is more concentrated now than it was before the crisis. Uh, Here is a dramatic example. The same is true in the U.S. These institutions remain extraordinarily highly leveraged. If you take a representative big big British uh, uh, universal bank like like Barclays, its leverage is still about 30 to 1. It has next to no equity in it. And to make up for this fundamental fragility of the system, we are going to have regulators basically second-guessing what these firms are doing in many detailed particulars. And I think that's very likely to fail. It's very likely that the system will run away from itself again, create new problems, and the regulators will not be able to control it. They won't be able to understand it. Second, the macroprudential policy they're going to be following, which is to, to stop um, asset price booms and credit expansions, will run directly contrary in very important circumstances to monetary policy, which might be expansionary at just the point when everybody wants to control, uh, when uh, the macro pro policy is trying to control things. Remember, monetary policy works through the credit system. If you control it by other means, the likelihood is you get large conflicts. So um, it seems to me this is quite problematic. So that's what they've done. In addition, of course, we've had the very big problem of trying to get demand back into our economies after this huge recession. And nobody has done this successfully. And I discuss, and I'm going to go, not going to go this in further, a number of ways we could have been more effective than we were in dealing with this. There are two respects which seem to me particularly, or three respects which seem to me particularly important and we should discuss. First, we should probably have been more aggressive, uh, somebody like Ken Rogoff and Harvard will argue much more aggressive in debt restructuring. 
It's very difficult to do this, particularly when you're dealing with debts of, 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 of debtors who can service their debt, but debt restructuring has been very limited. We've deleveraged very little. The second thing we could have done, and of course people will know that I, some of you will know I've been very much on this argument, we could have done much more with fiscal policy. And finally, and I've argued this uh, following Adair himself, we could have used monetary policy directly to support demand through the use of so-called helicopter money. This is a very radical policy proposed by a very radical economist called Milton Friedman, Friedman of all people, who said, well, if, if the private sector won't generate money, and in, money in credit, then the government can and should. And I've argued for that very, very strongly. And it seems to me part of the toolkit for dealing with a deep recession like this is precisely, is precisely that. And we, we didn't do that. Finally, really finally, in the last couple of minutes, um, uh, the long run view. I make, I'll just make three things that seem to me to emerge from my book which are worth thinking. First, the macro problem. I argue that one of the real absurdities of this world, and I explain in detail why it's happened, why it's happened, the risks that have generated, is that we've got a huge net flow of capital from emerging countries to rich countries, which are demonstrably unable to use it productively. They've shown they're unable to, to do it productively. This is basically because emerging countries want to minimize their risks of capital openness. They have experienced the problem. And I argue that, it won't happen of course, that the case for insuring developing countries against foreign currency risk is very, very large. And I have no doubt at all that if John Maynard Keynes were around, he would say, well, it proved that I was right in my views of what the IMF should have been, and we need a hugely expanded credit system at the centre to support emerging countries that will invest more. That, so that seems to me the biggest macro lesson. Second, uh, we could reduce regulation of banking of the type I mentioned dramatically if we're prepared to insist that banks are reasonably capitalized. By reasonable, and I discussed that at great length, by reasonably capitalized, I mean they shouldn't be leveraged more than 10 to 1. They have to have enough equity to cushion themselves against almost all plausible losses, and that brings you closer to it. I wouldn't be unhappy with 5 to 1. There's a huge transitional problem, but it seems to me the case for a much more robust banking system with much more equity in it is very strong. And finally, I discuss at length, and I think that's where Adair will probably want to start, or might want to start, the ideas for actually separating banking from the, the business of creating money. A huge part, I've been very persuaded here by the arguments of Gary Gorton of Yale, a huge part of the fragility of our entire system is that on one hand, of the one side of the balance sheet of every major financial institution are a huge quantity of long-term, very risky assets. And on the other side of their balance sheet is stuff we think of as money, stuff we want to be safe, safe purchasing power precisely when things go wrong. And that's precisely when it isn't safe. And that is why, of course, governments have insured this so radically. 
But having a system which, as I've described, has all these risky assets on the one hand and explicitly and implicitly insured liabilities on the other creates a hopelessly unstable system. So one way of doing this is to separate the monetary system from the banking system, and that can be done with the radical ideas of 100% reserve banking. And or positive money's idea, positive money, a think tank here, of simply getting government to create money. And that idea is also explored in my book. Um, so with that, I've introduced, I think, broadly the themes of this book. Uh, please do not think that the 20 minutes or 23 minutes I've given you is a substitute for reading it, because, <laughs> because of course, it isn't. Thank you. Well, when Martin and I were discussing how we'd uh, structure this conversation, we thought that one of the interesting themes would be to discuss, well, just how radical do we need to be to have a safer financial system and to deal with the problems that we're in? So let me start with this question, Martin. At the absolute core of this book is, and you touched on it at the end, that banks, private banks, what we call fractional reserve banks, banks as we know them today, can create credit and money and purchasing power. And they can create it essentially at limitless amounts, and that creates uh, instability. And as you say on page 350, a system that is based as today on the ability of profit-seeking institutions, i.e. banks, to create money as a byproduct of often grotesquely irresponsible lending is irretrievably, irretrievably, you say, uh, unstable. Now, as you also describe in the book, there were some economists of the 1930s who observed that irretrievable instability, people like Irving Fisher and uh, Henry Simons, who said, this is so irretrievably unstable that there's only really one thing we can do, and that is what was called the Chicago Plan, presented to uh, President Roosevelt in 1934, uh, and it was for 100% reserve banking. And it essentially says the money supply should be the monetary base, the monetary supply should be created by the central bank and by no one else. And banks should simply be ways of providing you with checking facilities, but all of their money should be deposits at the central bank. Now, you sort of say you're in favour of that, Martin, but if I can read you what you actually say when you get down to it, having said that the present system is intolerable and that this might be something to be look at, you say today, in relation to the Chicago plan, nobody has the nerve to try such a radical scheme, but it would be wonderful if some countries dared to experiment. Now, are you saying that is what we should do? Do you believe that the only way we can have a stable system is to move to 100% reserve banking money? Um, this is an excellent question, of course. Uh, <laughs> at this stage, well, let me tell you where I am now. I try to be honest about these things. Um, first of all, I'd like to... We've got a half an hour for this answer. Yeah. Uh, the... <laughs> I'd like to say that my remark about experimentation is meant very seriously uh, in itself. One of the things I've learned, and one of the reasons I'm worried about what I've called the new orthodoxy, is that um, making 
a financial system, perhaps it's particularly true of a financial system, it might be true of the economic system as a whole, making a financial system that is too undiversified, too similar across the world, create risks, very large risks. And the and the uh, and one of the things actually discussed there is simply the actually it's one aspect of this. It doesn't solve the problem of the instability of the financial system, for example, if you get rid of too big to fail banks. Though that's an important issue, it's just an example of this. If you've got smaller banks, all of which take the same risks as one another, the system as a whole is exposed to the same risk. So having an undiversified system is itself problematic. But furthermore, I actually think that when we, and this is the core thing, we cannot be sure, when I'll come to in a moment, what system will work least badly. And I stress least badly. There are fundamental contradictions of what we're trying to do because basically what the financial system's trying to do is to cope with ineradicable uncertainty about the future. That's the, its nature. That's a, a core point that Keynes made. And so we, it's going to work. It's going to malfunction in some sense quite a lot of the time. So it's a question of what will work least badly. And I'll come to what are the problems with the 100% reserve banking. But I, so I actually think having a world in which people, countries, don't all adopt the same system, don't all use the same rules, but actually have experiments on, with different rules and different approaches and see what works, what works better and learning from one another is actually itself immensely sensible. And furthermore, I'm actually quite convinced in this particular case that I'm certainly not going to get the Basel Committee to agree on 100% reserve banking. That's a, about as safe as anything can be. If it's ever going to be tried at all, it's got to be tried by somebody. Uh, and on the whole, when I look at the people who've been actually prepared to do some really interesting experiments, like the Icelanders, for example, well, it took us actually, who cares what Iceland does except Icelanders, so they can just go ahead and do it and break all the rules. And they have broken all the rules, by the way. So my proposal about experiment is, experimentation is actually philosophically based. It's not just a weaseling out of the, uh, out of the uh, issue of what should be done, because I'm not as confident as I used to be about what should be done. But this then gets to me to the core of the problem, which is why can't one be, be confident? I'm pretty clear that with 100% reserve banking, two good things would happen. Banks would be stable. You wouldn't have to worry about whether or not the bank could pay you out your deposit because you surely could. And uh, we're talking about, of course, a floating money world. I'm not going, talking about a gold standard world, which I do discuss, but it's another thing, and I really don't think it's relevant to this discussion. So you've got uh, – it would make banking completely safe. There's no doubt about that. And it would give back to the state – a, uh, the power to create money, which in some sense is a social power. It's quite clear money is a social power. Why should it be privatised? Um, so what are the arguments against this? Uh, well, there are arguments against this which are perfectly reasonable arguments, in my view. There are essentially two arguments against such a system, which both of which seem to be reasonable. There are answers to these counter-arguments, but, they are there, but they, it's important to see how it would work. The first argument, of course, is that if you give government the power to create money, 
really give it the power to create money rather than just overseeing the power of the private sector to create money, government will abuse it. And looking at the history of monetary arrangements in the world, that's not an entirely unreasonable concern. Uh, gov- many governments have abused the power to create money. I said, if you doubt that, go and look at the monetary history of Argentina. So it's perfectly possible. Now, I answer to that. There are ways of dealing with that, I think, through actually through giving the central bank the first decision on how this will be done. But you'd have to say that's a stronger uh, pressure on the central bank than it would be on our present system because the central bank will be denying the, the, the government cheap credit. The second argument, which seems to me more important, is what happens to the rest of the financial system in this, uh, in this, uh, in this world? Now, one possibility is the rest of the financial system, uh, which is no longer treated as a bank, essentially creates, through the tr- shadow banking, t- we now call them shadow banking, all the features of the present fractional reserve system, because it seems to have been historically a pretty spontaneous development, without any oversight at all. Or alternatively, you end up with a huge amount of oversight on it, which looks just like what we have now, in which case we haven't improved things very much. So that's a big problem. Now, the counter-argument again, which comes from actually the Chicago plan and Larry Kotlikoff of Boston, who's put forward a similar proposal now, is essentially he makes, or they make, illegal any institution outside the banking sector, as we define it, which does term transformation. Essentially what they do then is everything else, if you like, becomes an investment trust or a unit trust. You take the risk. It's not taken by the intermediaries. Now, that's perfectly rational because ultimately all the risks in the economy are borne by you. There's no one else to bear them. This is clear. They're borne by us all. So this just makes it as explicit. We don't pretend that intermediaries can. But it is possible that if we do that, and it's never been tried, that we will lose a fantastic amount of valuable activity which a fractional reserve type system with all its risks and instabilities generates. And that's very much the position that Charles Goodhart of this parish has famously taken. So my view is... It is something that should be tried. It will certainly deal with some very, very big problems we have in the nature of the financial system that has developed over the last couple of hundred years and has got more unstable over time, partly because of the amount of government support it gets and partly because, uh, because of, of uh, all the, the benefits of, or disadvantages of uh, technological innovations in making it more and more go-go. But the, uh, it, there are real uh, disadvantages we'll get rid of. But it also creates huge new challenges. So it seems to me the sensible thing to do, not knowing exactly how this would work, is for somebody to try. Unfortunately, we've got 200 countries in the world, and perhaps we can get persuade ten, five or ten to have a go and see what happens. There's no reason you couldn't do this in one country, by the way, because a monetary area is a monetary area. Uh, so I see that as a perfectly reasonable su- suggestion and not just weaseling out of the issue. Now, I know... Uh, others will disagree but I'm actually reasonably happy or at least not terribly unhappy with this somewhat compromised position I've ended up in Good. well whatever we should do to make the system more stable for the future whether it's 100% reserve banking or whether it's tighter macro prudential controls or whatever we clearly didn't do it before the crisis we built up huge amounts of debt 
And we now have a debt overhang problem. And that debt overhang problem, you're fundamentally arguing, is a fundamental reason why we are struggling with close to deflation, very weak uh, recovery. Indeed, broadly speaking, since 2008 across the world, we haven't got rid of leverage at all. We've just shifted it around from the private to the public sector, a little bit from uh, Europe to China, etc. In that environment, we appear to be blocked as to how we stimulate the economy. We can try and do it by ultra-low interest rates, but that appears to just work by restoking the very problems we had in the first place. We can have higher fiscal deficits, but if you do that, you end up like Japan with 230% debt to GDP and rising, and some people worry about that. The option to think about in that circumstance is helicopter money, which is you run a higher fiscal deficit and you fund it with central bank money. You send a £5,000 cheque to everybody citizen in the country and you reassure them that they don't have to be worried about how they'll repay the debt that funded that because there isn't debt that funded that. It was funded by the central bank. Now, you've written about that. I've written about that. And no government has, say, uh, done it. And indeed, I found that if you write about that, as I did, uh, one central bank uh, uh, friends around the world, central banker governor friends around the world, sort of avoid looking you in the eye because uh, you've, uh, you've broken a taboo, uh, which is you're not meant to talk about that. Um, is that what we should have done? Should we have done that in Britain in 2010? Should we do it today? Should Japan do it today? Is that actually the only way out of driving our economies back at the pace we want to drive them back? Well, first of all, my guess is, and this is a guess, not a prognostication, is that retrospectively we will have realised that this is what Japan has done. Uh, It's very difficult to to imagine any other outcome than that they, given the current stock of debt and the the plausible growth rate of the Japanese economy simply for demographic reasons, uh, the population is shrinking, and actually productivity growth in Japan is quite tolerable, but still the economy grows at less than 1% a year. So if you've got this colossal debt stock, which is growing rapidly, it's very difficult to believe they won't end up monetizing it retrospectively, and it isn't terribly difficult to imagine that this could happen elsewhere uh, or would have happened elsewhere um, in countries in the one or two countries which I won't mention in the Eurozone, if they could print money, which they can't, so they're going to default. Uh, and I think there's, that's the next that at some point will be the, the next round of fun in the Eurozone. But uh, one of the next rounds of fun in the Eurozone, I I don't mean this too um, jocularly. It will be terrible. Um, so I think retrospectively, this is likely to happen. For the, you know, this is sometimes called fiscal dominance. You know, if you run a large enough fiscal deficit and accumulate enough debt in the long run, sooner or later monetary policy is dictated by that fiscal policy. Uh, you can't sell the debt anymore, and the, the, the last buyer, the buyer of last resort, is the central bank, and you've monetized it. Now, I would uh, have argued in the, and did argue in the UK case, uh, I think you argued too, um, so we were on the same side, that that would have been a very sensible policy for the UK to follow instead of, particularly since we did a very large amount of quantitative easing, link it to um, maintaining the government deficit and try to accelerate our rate of growth out of the crisis. 
um, remember that even with these very helpful revisions of, by the ONS last week or the week before, I can't remember exactly, uh, we still had basically the slowest recovery from a major event of this kind in recorded history in the UK. Uh, the result is sometimes called the cost of living crisis because we have shared it out in terms of employment, but real incomes have declined for most workers. And I think we could have avoided that if we'd been prepared to be much more aggressive about demand. And given the conditions we were in, the obvious thing to do would have been to continue to run a large fiscal deficit and have part of it funded by the central bank, which, as I said, was proposed by that wild radical uh, Milton Friedman. So I think it would have been perfectly sensible. Now, of course, in making, I'm much less, I'm not, there's, partly there's a concern, well, if, as soon as you do this, the, the, the next stage is hyperinflation. I've got lots of that. That seems to me more or less nonsense. Uh, that, that was no danger in that I read this many times. Either from QE or such policies of immediate hyperinflation, there was a big debate after the crisis when QE started, quantitative easing started, that this would immediately lead to hyperinflation, particularly in the US. And all that was nonsense. And I discussed that in the book. So I think we could have contained uh, that. I think it would have been a much more productive use of the central bank's ability to create money. Now, obviously, this is predicated on the assumption that a part of our experience is a huge collapse in demand. Not all. There's clearly uh, was part of the real GDP we were measuring before the crisis in all our countries was exaggerated. I think it was a modest part, but it was clearly a part. There's no doubt about it. But the, uh, it's also clear, it seems to me, we, we suffer from a pretty serious demand deficiency. Let me give you some idea of this, what this means, because Adair was talking about it. If we take the UK economy today... I haven't redone it with the latest figures, but this is the figure from the last one. The UK economy today is about 18 or 19 percent smaller than it would have been if the trend up to 1980, uh, 2007, and I don't mean the last 10 years, I mean the previous 30 years trend had continued. An 18 percent shortfall relative to trend is an enormous shortfall. I mean, it's just spectacular. And the shortfall in the U.S. is similar, and in the Eurozone, it's similar. That's what I meant by saying the losses are, are extraordinary. It's very difficult to imagine that suddenly something happened in 2007 that dictated that we would have such a huge loss relative to the long-term trend productivity. Even if you think productivity growth should have slowed, the fact that it just stopped is quite extraordinary. And I think it's very difficult to imagine that's not partly due or significantly due to demand. There's a big debate how much. And the trouble is, if you've got a demand shortfall, it becomes cumulative, because one of the consequences of a huge prolonged demand shortfall is people stop investing. Business stops investing. Why should it invest if there's no demand? So they don't. And the demand collapse, investment collapsed in our economy for years. Uh, that's where we are even now. So come back to your answer. Yes, we should have tried to sustain demand much more determinedly than we did. And there's no reason why we couldn't have used the central bank to support this. I know this is regarded as the policy of, uh, uh, of Zimbabwe, but I still think it's perfectly sensible policy to, be, to have pursued, given that we were in any case in using the central bank radically to shift around asset prices. Why not? Let's talk about the eurozone, which you do at uh, considerable uh, length uh, and with considerable uh, pessimism about how we're going to get out of the present situation. And the situation of the Eurozone, of course, is that we have 
a lot of debt, public debt, which has been issued by uh, a political entities which are in uh, a uh, Charles uh, Goodhart's phrase, sub-sovereign. They're not fully sovereign. Uh, they can't uh, monetize it. And that creates a potentially very uh, unstable system. Now, there's a logical set of ways forward. Either the thing moves to federalism, but not only a federalism, but a federalism, federal system which is willing sometimes to allow automatic fiscal stabilizers to work, uh, or it breaks up, or there is a large debt default which reduces the debt burdens. Do you think there's any chance that there's a, a coherent way through this, or is it all just going to be chaotic? There is a, uh, I think you give three alternatives, didn't you? So there is a fourth alternative which the optimists might have believed in, and perhaps they still believe in, which is that you grow out of it. Right. That the Eurozone is going to grow so dynamically uh, that the growth rate will, to protect, will so much exceed the real interest rate that uh, the debt just automatically slow, lowers. And actually, it's pretty clear that isn't going to happen. None of the heavily indebted countries have, have managed to achieve really rapid growth. They're all incredibly excited because Spain might be growing more than 1%, uh, 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 maybe even 2 uh, uh, and don't forget, it's about 8% smaller than it was six years ago. So uh, the, the, at that rate, it gets back to starting point in, in 20, 2017. That's really a lost decade. And Spain is the best of the big countries. Italy isn't growing at all. France isn't growing. So the, the debt problems are just going to get worse. So that growing out of it isn't going to happen under the current policies. And for it to happen, that something so radical would change that you, you can't imagine that. Uh, of the other possibilities, um, well, they're not going to federalise. That's pretty clear. Uh, I can't imagine that, at least in the near term. Uh, the, uh, the, so that doesn't uh, look at all possible. They, they're not going to inflate. I mean, the, the dear old ECB is trying desperately hard to avoid deflation, uh, but it's not trying very successfully. The rate of uh, inflation is steadily falling towards zero, and in some countries already well into deflation. So that raises the real value of debt all the time. This is debt deflation, what Irving Fisher called debt deflation. Real debt falls, if rises if prices levels fall. So you're left with defaults. And I think, you know, I'm not the only economist who thinks defaults will happen. The, the question, of course, is how on earth you manage these defaults, which will be a mixture of private and public sector defaults, uh, almost certainly including the, including the latter. The way I've tended to see the problem is if you have a public sector default in most of these countries, it will also take down a big chunk of the banking system with it. And I think that will be true even after what they're doing with the so-called asset quality review. And I sort of my rule on these things is a government might be prepared to accept a default on its debt, and it might be prepared to accept a, a collapse of its banking system, but it's not going to accept both at the same time. That's when the system breaks up. And that's because I think that danger still is out there that I have been consistently rather pessimistic and I don't believe the problems are resolved. But this is the direction in which you end up. I am not going to mention the names of countries that might get into this situation, but I suggest you just look at the data. Thank you. Now, we started uh, a bit uh, late. 
but I think we've still got some time. I'm assuming we can run another 10 minutes or so, can we? Yeah. Uh, so I want to take questions from uh, the floor now, and I, that's the very first hand I've seen back there, you, you, sir. And in fact, what I suggest we do is we'll take three so that Martin can deal with them together. So one back there, and uh, one the lady here, and then the lady up there as well. Right. Yeah, my my question is simply about uh, future uncertainty, the shocks to come. Three were listed on the front of the FT today. Um, Obviously, one is imminent, namely on Friday or by Friday morning, um, with the result of the Scottish independence referendum. Uh, Do you envisage capital flight on the occasion of a yes vote? And you yourself are on record as saying a narrow no vote would be worse than a yes. What are the economic or financial repercussions of that? Okay, and the lady in front here, yes? Yeah, um, thanks for your talk. I just wanted to um, clarify about 100%, a point about 100% reserve banking. So, I mean, sort of Econ 101 stuff, we learned that um, it's good to put savings into productive investments. But if we have 100% reserve banking, would that not represent a lot of lost potential in regards to using some of that towards productive investments? Okay, and then up there, please. Thank you very much. An excellent uh, discussion. Um, Do you believe that the roots to the financial crisis um, can be derived from the desegregation of the financial market in the 1970s, giving the UK the control and the space in the rule of law they needed to trade across wider wider territory? Thank you. The, do you mean the deregulation? Is it, uh, yeah, the deregulation. Good, thank you. So the first question was on Scotland, and you know, as a criticism of this book, Martin, <laughs> you, you, you don't have a section on Scotland. I mean, what went wrong there? Uh, anyway, uh, your response to those questions. <laughs> well, the answer, of course, to that question is not that I didn't think it was imaginable, because, but probably shows a lack of imagination. I don't think a Scottish yes will cause the next global financial crisis. But it might be, you know, I've been wrong about these things before. One of the, um, I can still remember in June uh, 97 when I learned that the Thai baht was just devaluing. And I can tell you, I really didn't expect what that led to and the, the perfectly normal thing as a, a country which is certainly not a core country of the world financial system devalued and and uh, a few months later we were in the middle of the second worst financial crisis since uh, the war so that just tells you so maybe Scotland will cause an avalanche um, <coughs> uh, but answers your question I would expect and I assume there must be some capital flight I assume institutions will change their location if they are dependent on the UK government's capacity to backstop them. And, um, and I do believe that, that since essentially the Scottish financial system is already underpinned by the um, institutions of the British state, the, the, uh, Scotland is less than, slightly less than 10% of the economy of the British, of the British economy, that though it will be uh, disruptive, it won't be catastrophic for the rest of the UK. The, that's an interesting issue. Um, I have argued that the next few years in Scotland will be quite exciting if they, if they vote yes. And a very interesting 
lessons will be learned about all sorts of things, and because, of course, it will create, as soon as the yes vote is part, if there is a yes vote, immense uncertainty about the future monetary, fiscal, financial uh, institutions of Scotland. What they're going to look like, we don't know. I mean, um, maybe in all that experimentation, they could introduce 100% with <laughs> banking. And the, the second question, it's important to set this, I'm not going to go into this in detail, because, but this, is a, this goes back actually to the, all the discussions among the, the Vixellians and Austrians in the first 30 or 40 years of the last century, which is it's important to distinguish, distinguish money creation from savings. They're different things. Savings are a flow. Uh, of resources and there's no reason in principle why since the money will be created freely it doesn't involve any resources government can create as much money as it likes it's not that um, this will diminish the amount of savings in the economy or should diminish the amount of course the channels through which the savings go will change and that might this is the crucial point I think Charles Goddard is getting that might change the risk preferences of the system because you're putting more of the risk explicitly on households uh, instead of pretending that they're not bearing the risk as we are now. And the argument essentially is by pretending that they're not bearing the risk, they actually take more risk than they realise, and that's fine because it allows the whole economy to take more risk, which benefits them. And uh, it's a sort of brilliant con game is essentially what we're saying our current system is. Uh, there's related to that this is an idea of, in fact of Friedrich Hayek who was also taught here uh, famously um, that as it were they create temporary the fractional reserves system pseudo savings people think they're real that doesn't matter because ex post it creates investment which validates them they, I've never, I, I'm not persuaded this is a completely watertight argument but it's, it is an argument that is out there. And, uh, and it's part of the thinking that the Austrians had in the early, 20, 19th, early 20th century about how the monetary system interacted with the real economy, which is the core of all this stuff. And my own view, by the way, is economists haven't fully resolved these sets of issues. But I think the core point I would make is the change of the, the monetary system in the way I did I described would not necessarily of itself change the size of savings or the, the, therefore the flows of savings, but it might change in worrying ways, and that's one of the arguments against it. I suggested that. The risk-bearing capacity of the system, because people might not allow the sort of term transformation we now see between assets and liabilities, and therefore the system would become as a whole much less risk much more risk averse. And that will be worrying. So that's one good reason for seeing what happens if somebody tries it. Um, and the last question is, did deregulation create the conditions for this? Yeah, pretty obviously it did. Uh, in the sense that, as I've tried to describe and I discussed in the book and others have discussed, Adair has discussed this, because people didn't understand properly, um, I'm part of this, 
the way a deregulated financial system might work in the circumstances of the world as it was, they seriously underestimated its instability and its capacity, therefore, to generate panic. And as a result of this, because they misunderstood that very, very seriously, we ended up with a catastrophic crisis with whose consequences we are now living. And in all probability, we're going to live with indefinitely. So the answer is yes. <laughs> right, we're going to take, uh, I think, yeah, three more. Very quickly we'll have to be, and then Martin will respond to it. I'll take one up there, and then the gentleman there who had his hands up before, and then the lady over here. Right, I'm afraid that's all we'll have time for. I'm sure you can go and find Martin afterwards when he will be signing books and I'm sure asking questions. Sir. Thank you. Yes, you've spoken a lot about what has gone wrong over the last six years, but when you compare the UK against certainly most of Europe now, we're doing pretty well. So if you exclude the impact of European countries being part of the Eurozone, what have we done well? Okay, what have we done well? Um, It it strikes me, if you take it to an extreme, bank reserves are essentially binary. Either we believe the piece of paper we get which tells us how much money, or we don't. And if we don't, they have to have 100%. And if we do, it almost doesn't matter what they've got, because we believe it. And that the bar regulations are seriously damaging, because they essentially demand the banks keep higher reserves, while at the same time the politicians demand the banks lend more money, which are mutually contradictory. This has created the intermediary market, which essentially will take all the business away from the banks, <clears throat> but will be the cause of the next crisis because they're mostly unregulated and they will create the credit again. Okay, and over there. Um, Good evening, Mr. Martin uh, and Lord Turner. My question is twofold, one relating to the cause and another relating to the solution. Um, When you pointed out that, and even the lady asked about deregulation, Uh, The world was, after post-war era, was growing rapidly at around, global GDP was growing at around 4 to 5%, which itself was an indicator of something wrong in the entire system. Why were the regulators not able to gauge the issue prior to the entire fiasco unfolding in itself as a global crisis? And secondly, uh, when you mentioned the control mechanism in the form of a global financial regulation, how can you possibly implement it in a disparate global system with several uh, jurisdictional issues and the f- while the flow of capital is very uh, easy? Good. Thank you. Good. Two very good questions. Of course, the first one is not original. It is the Queen's question. Why did nobody see it coming? Uh, but Martin, responses to those. <laughs> um, I'll try and be yeah. really brief because these are fascinating questions. Um, What has the UK done well? Well, if you compare the UK with the the three main Eurozone countries, France, Germany, and Italy, well, Italy is clearly a disaster. So GDP GDP today in Italy is about 10% below pre-crisis peaks. So that's unique. Italy's had a terrible, terrible depression. Uh, There's no other word for it. It's a terrible depression. France and the UK, interestingly, in terms of GDP relative to the starting point, and I tend to compare with the starting point, not all the bumps in between, they're more or less the same. 
the, because France never had a deep recession. We did have a deep recession. We are now growing faster than France. So come back in three years' time, and then we can have the discussion about how much better UK is doing than France. I don't find that at all implausible, by the way. It might well be the case. But the interesting thing is over these six years, uh, the UK and France have been level pegging. Germany, of course, is well ahead of us, uh, remains well uh, ahead of us. What have we done right? Um, well, I think the answer to that is two uh, things. We kept our own currency, uh, and the devaluation didn't do much for us. Remarkably little, actually. Itself quite surprising. But it left us with complete monetary policy freedom, and the Bank of England used it, big time. Uh, so it seems to me the most important difference. Our fiscal position, by the way, is no better than France and much worse than Germany. So clearly it's not because we've done a wonderful job on fiscal policy taking the whole period. But the, the, if we, we're thinking about austerity as the, the key to getting it work, the key thing, it seems to me, is two things. One, our labour market really has been very flexible. And that's kept us employment remarkably high given how massive the recession is. And two, the central bank has done things that the ECB has simply been unable to do. And just never, you know, central bankers, the ECB, for example, has allowed its balance sheet to shrink for two years while the, the Bank of England has done this. Second question, um, um, I don't disagree. I mean, it's part of my critique that uh, we've got a contradictory regulatory structure in which we're trying to get banks to be much safer and to lend much more. Uh, uh, the net effect of this is, is certainly going to be to shift risk-taking outside the banking system. That doesn't matter if the institutions outside the banking system can bear the risk. Come back and let's have a very long discussion about the nature of that. At the moment, by the way, in the UK, we remain unbelievably bank-dominated. But in the long run, we're likely to generate a, uh, a shadow banking system like the US, and that creates some very, very interesting questions about its stability, and it's related to the long discussion we had earlier about whether making the banking sector safe makes the financial system safe. It's a very interesting set of questions. Um, finally, the, the, um, the questions on the past and the future. Um, the, I think the short answer to your question is why didn't people believe there were huge risks? With two elements. First, a huge part of the very rapid growth of the world economy before 2007, a huge part was the emerging countries, above all China, of course. China was the fastest growing, but also India. And so everybody thought that was perfectly all right because they were rapid catch-up countries uh, with, with tremendous growth opportunities, exploiting the opportunities of globalization, transfer of technology. All that was perfectly reasonable. Uh, I, at least I still think it's reasonable. The other part, of course, what supported their export growth, particularly for China, I argue that in the book, is our ability to buy more and more stuff. And that did depend on credit expansion and there were people like me who thought credit expansion couldn't continue like this. I wrote a previous book about this, and I didn't think the imbalances could continue like this. I just didn't think it would end in such a spectacular bang. I thought it would end with a whimper. And then we could sort it out, but I was clearly seriously wrong. So that was the, the key thing. Not that things could, could go on like that, because they couldn't, but because lack of imagination of just how messy it would be when it ended. Finally, you're asking a really deep question, which I think is right. 
Um, among the developed countries in Europe and the US, I think it's not impossible, though difficult, for regulations agreed in Basel to be applied more or less in the same way. Because there's a relatively small number of regulators involved, and they all talk to one another all the time, and they're all running financial systems which have certain similarities. The idea that these rules will be applied in the same way in the emerging world is obviously a fantasy. So far, this isn't a huge problem because the major banking systems of the emerging world, above all China's, which is now the biggest in the world, uh, are effectively sealed from the rest of the world. I have written a column in which I have argued that the next really big financial crisis is likely to be the interaction between the Chinese system and the rest of the world's. It's not terribly difficult to imagine that could be the crisis in the 2020s. Um, and I agree with you completely that there are, there are the, these agreed regulations are not going to work in China or in the same way as they might in the US. But there is one thing that one can be reasonably certain, uh, this is slightly brutal, the Chinese have sanctions on misbehavior by bankers slightly different from ours. And, <laughs> and I suspect the bankers are aware of this. <laughs> Well, that's all we have time for today. We have uh, simply skimmed the surface of this book. But as Martin said earlier, that gives you a good reason to go and buy it. And Martin will be outside uh, in a minute. Thank you all for coming this evening. And thank you, Martin, very much. For